every day is an interview. Um, and uh, I don't mean that to like um, sound overwhelming, but every, every day is an opportunity to impress. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm excited to do this episode. It's great to hear that. Um, Jesse, I guess, first off, could you tell us about a little bit, a little bit about One Kronos and what you guys do there? Sure. So um, One Kronos is a technology company. And by the way, please, uh, either of you interrupt me if, uh, if I'm using language that, you know, <laughs> doesn't resonate with, uh, with your listeners. Sometimes I, you know, might jump into some acronyms or things like that. And uh, please keep me honest. So <laughs> One Kronos is a technology company, and we really live at the intersection of capital markets, um, auction theory, and operations research. We design matching engines for the buying and selling of uh, securities or risk assets. Mm. Um, you know, at its core, uh, we are really optimizing quite literally for uh, the best outcomes for our customers. Mm -hmm. um, and our current product and our most recent product, which is also our first product, is a U.S. equities uh, trading venue akin to a stock exchange. Mm. Okay. So one of the main things that you think about when you talk about a company like One Kronos that is relatively new is the culture at a startup. And what, what, what's that like? Um, so could you tell us a little bit about One Kronos when you were just getting started and where you're at right now when it comes to culture? Preserving that culture can be difficult. And what have some of those difficulties of preserving an awesome culture been for you? So it's a really great question. And I'm going to take a slightly different spin on it, which is culture, in my opinion, is actually meant to uh, morph and adapt over time. Mm. And so one of the questions that we ask ourselves is, you know, is this person that we're hiring adapting our culture in a direction that we want it to adapt in? I actually feel pretty passionately that it's almost false advertising to say to our team, hey, we're hiring this person, but don't worry, she's not going to have an effect on our culture because we want them to have an effect on our culture. We want them to take us in a direction that brings us to a new frontier of our culture. So we try and tease out and ask questions to understand what that direction is going to be because uh, Culture is like air, right? It exists whether you focus on it or you don't focus on it. You're going to have culture. Mm -hmm. So um, the question is like, you know, we therefore should be deliberate about culture, but we should also understand the ramifications of bringing someone on. And as a small company, uh, you know, we started, you know, with very few people. Uh, we launched our first product. And as I mentioned in the intro, mm -hmm. you know, U.S. equities trading venue. Uh, which you can think of like an exchange. Um, we launched that effectively with six people, um, four of whom were developers. So, you know, definitionally, everybody had an outsized impact on the product um, mm -hmm. from, from uh, at least a technology standpoint, if not a commercial standpoint. But everyone also had an impact on our culture. 
we now have 15 people going on 17. Wow. And, uh, you know, each individual that joins uh, kind of on average has slightly less of an impact on the culture, but they all have an impact on the culture. So we kind of define guardrails of, you know, how we want to operate, but we're very positive and encouraging of people taking us in a, in a new direction culturally. Mm -hmm. uh, we just want to make sure that those are, you know, in line with, you know, the principles that, that we envision in terms of culture. And at the end of the day, we don't want to pretend that, you know, culture will just magically form itself into a nice, happy, congenial way, especially with employees that are, you know, remote and here yeah. in New York. And sort of along those lines, um, when you're building a startup, how do you, how do you think you find the people that you want to work for you? And when you know, or when, when you just make the decision to expand, what is your rationale behind that? Why do you choose to expand as a startup? When did it, when did you feel was right? Or why did you feel it was right to go from the six people you had when you launched your first product to the 17 you have now? Yeah. So let me start with the second one, uh, which very, uh, these questions are very related because usually, usually as an early stage firm, it's kind of obvious uh, because you have a need for something specific. Mm -hmm. And most startups end up being, you know, what a, what a larger organization calls top heavy. Um, there's not that much room for junior people yet because you're bringing people in that have specific expertise in solving a specific type of problem. Now we're a technology company. So like we have lots of specific types of problems. Like we do want rangy people um, and we want people, you know, with high aptitude and motivation. Um, but at the beginning, you know, you have a specific type of engineering problem, like, right. You want to build a front end. Uh, you need a front end engineer, most likely. Um, you, you know, you have a bunch of stuff that you need to organize and structure in database because you have a ton of data mm -hmm. uh, coming in. You probably want someone that's spent a good amount of time of dealing with uh, databases and infrastructure. You have a specific type of customer base that you're looking for, looking to penetrate. You probably want someone that, you know, is reputable and proven on the street to, to have uh, very long standing trusted relationships with that customer base. So at the beginning, it's more obvious. Now the constraints around that are usually money, right? Like mm -hmm. you're confined to, you know, you've raised a certain amount of capital, um, particularly in a world where you haven't launched your product yet. And you're pretty sensitive to how you're burning that money, right? Like mm -hmm. most startups fail over half of startups fail. Mm -hmm. um, and usually the way, the reason that they fail is, it's not that they were a poor idea and it's not necessarily that they were poor at executing an idea that might've had merit. It's that they ran out of money too quickly before they could get the thing off the ground or they could get it to a point where they were able to generate revenue. Mm -hmm. or how do you know when you want to expand and how do you know the people, the people that you're hiring, how do you know those are the right people? Right. So the two questions are very related and typically at an early stage, it's obvious. Uh, it's more obvious as to what you need. That's typically constrained by capital. 
and it's constrained by capital because you know you probably raise some amount of money or you have some amount of money to deal with and obviously it would be nice to hire you know five people for the five projects or five things that you think you need to build towards but you might be constrained because that puts pressure on the you know your burn rate or the amount of money that you're you know spending per month or per year um, and the reality is is that you know most startups fail more than half of startups fail and that's not because the ideas were bad and it's not because the team was not great at execution it's often because they just ran out of money before the project could come to fruition so you have to be selective about those things and that's why most startups are you know top heavy air quotes um, early on because you need specific people that have specific expertise uh, to work on specific types of problems. Um, as a technology company, that's usually pretty obvious to us. So, you know, some examples, you know, we have a, you know, if you want to build a front end, you know, and no one's done it before, um, if you can afford it, you might want someone that has expertise in building and developing front ends. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have, you know, a complex database, or rather you have a lot of data coming in and it's not necessarily structured, um, you might want someone that has good expertise in doing exactly that. If you have a customer base that you're looking to penetrate and no one has experience with that customer base, rather than organically trying to develop it, there might be great business developers or salespeople out there that have known, trusted, enduring relationships with those types of customers. So um, usually it's obvious because it's a pain point for you. Uh -huh. And at the beginning, many people play many different roles in uh, kind of stretching outside of what they are typically great at to cover these things. And as you gain a little bit more traction and you have a better feel for, you know, how the, you know, the launch timing of the business and kind of the growth profile of the business, then you can get more comfortable hiring in the areas where you, where you know or think that you have an absolute need. Mm -hmm. And on the, on the other part of the question in terms of how do you know who the right people are? Um, you typically go to folks that have, you know, functional expertise in these domains. I mean, as you get a little bit further along, you can get a bit more broad on, you know, saying, look, like, and I'm a big, I'm a big believer in, you know, for example, uh, Ray Dalio has a book called Principles where he mm -hmm. talks a lot about hiring for aptitude and motivation and values and not focusing so much on specific skills. And the reason for that framework is because you can't teach people aptitude and motivation and values, but you can teach them skills, right? And it's, they're not necessarily easy, right? Like teaching someone linear programming or teaching someone, you know, Black-Scholes derivatives pricing, like these aren't necessarily the easiest of topics, but theoretically they can be taught. But I can't teach you aptitude and motivation, so that's what I should hire for. I agree with that. However, when you're very early on, you need to hire people that have specific skills. And ideally, mm -hmm. they grow, you know, you can look at them in a five-year time frame and say, I need to hire you now for this specific type of skill you have, but I still need to think about, you know, A, your impact to our culture, going back to our last question, and B, can I envision you like as a manager or a like senior individual contributor mm -hmm. in a few weeks time uh, branching out beyond this problem to other arenas? So that's typically how we've approached it. And I think we're, 
you know, we're, we're still basically looking at it that way. We're very proud of our success, but it's still early and we're still relatively small. Uh-huh. Jesse, talking at the more theoretical level now, um, generally you have startups that are very egalitarian, but as you get to a larger organization, you start to become a lot more status oriented where you have this big CEO at the top that seems super inaccessible to the average employee. Whereas, like mm. I said, with a startup, you could probably go and walk into the CEO's office and you probably have their phone number and talk to them all the time. Where does one Kronos lie in that spectrum right now? And what kind of models or literature anecdotes uh, combined with experience inform that model of culture that you have right now? Uh, I love that question. So first of all, it would be great to have offices here. We really don't have offices. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting in our one conference room and the rest of the team is, uh, is out here working away. So uh, one is, you know, we operate kind of like a trading floor. Um, you know, everyone's sitting next to each other uh, in, in one nice big room and that includes, you know, the, the most senior person and the most junior person. Um, two is we're, we're, we're fairly flat and, uh, and also fairly meritocratic in, in terms of how we make decisions. Um, so we're not, you know, to be fair to this, to like the status oriented comparison, we're not big enough where we're faced with too many of those challenges at this time. Like we really don't have that many layers. Yeah. Um, you know, like it doesn't make sense for, you know, 14 people to report to, you know, the CEO and that doesn't happen. We do have some uh, layering system, but this is a really meritocratic organization. Like, we, you know, uh, we have what I would generally refer to as junior people working on like really meaty project and projects and like pushing some very important code, arguably like some of the most important code that we have pushed yet. So we really kind of strive for, you know, not having a layering system that requires all these intermediaries. We do want to empower the most capable junior person to be making uh, decisions because they're the folks that are closest to the brass tacks. We want to make sure that, you know, at the management layer that we are accessible um, within reason, uh, which is basically all of the time. So um, we will confront those challenges as we grow. We're, we're still small enough where those things don't matter. I think if I were to like flip the question a bit on its head, I would say like inserting too much hierarchy and too much process in a startup um, can be challenging and dangerous. And also like a number of us that, you know, and the, in the management team came from banks and consulting firms where there was a lot of process and a lot of structure. And uh, it's, a, it's a very different vibe at a startup. Uh, every, every company is different, but at a startup, particularly a technology startup, particularly a company where there's a lot of research and development like ours. So what that means is like, you know, if we're going to have meetings, the meetings should really be places where discussions and decisions are made and the updates of things don't need to happen in the meeting. The updates can happen offline, right? They can happen in Slack. They can happen in real time. They can happen person to person. We all sit next to each other, so we don't need to wait until <laughs> like once every Wednesday or every other yep. Wednesday to talk about it. And so, and therefore, if there's no decision to be made in the meeting, then we don't need the meeting, give back the time. Like even if we're behind schedule on delivering those things, it doesn't mean that we need to have the meeting. So, you know, we, 
we have those types of views um, and we just don't want to insert too much hierarchy or, you know, like this must go to this person before it goes to this person kind yeah. of thing. So that's kind of me flipping it on its head of saying, you know, we all come from, well, those of us in management come from places that there is a lot of structure yeah. and there's vacation in those places for that structure, but that doesn't mean immediately impose that type of structure on a small company. Is there sort of a mutual understanding between the team and when you guys are acting and what, when you're working on things? Uh, in what regard? Um, I guess when you're, you're talking about meetings and keeping everyone on the same page, or if everyone's on the same page, there's no need for a meeting. Would you say there's generally, when you're making management decisions, are there debates going on internally? Or do you guys, do you think you are kind of in the same boat? I think that uh, we want there to be debate. If there were no debate, then we're kind of doing something wrong. I mean, I, I'm, I'm saying that half jokingly, like we do have very opinionated people yeah. and we want that and that's a good thing and people should be passionate and people should feel like owners. Uh, in fact, they are owners. This isn't like a sales pitch for home work at One Kronos, but we're, we're insistent that, um, that employees yeah. literally have skin in the game. Um, and so we want people to feel empowered to, uh, raise things that they're passionate about building and also raise their hand when they have concerns with something. Um, so that does happen quite a bit and we encourage that type of discussion. Obviously, like there's a way to handle that and to raise that. But generally speaking, I think like, you know, the, the short answer to the question or the, the shorter answer to the question is like, there's somewhat of a social contract in the sense that from the management layer, we communicate uh, the design of how we want something, the end goal or the customer experience, right? And then there's a good amount of trust with the, uh, the folks who are building and delivering that to deliver it in a way that they think is uh, responsible and robust, and it's not something that needs to be micromanaged. And so if you have a good social contract of sorts of, this is what we want the customer experience to be. This is the feedback that we've gotten some cli from clients on how they would use it and how they'd think about it. Then, you know, we don't need to be so involved in the minutiae or the exact implementation design. And that's left to a, a team of very qualified people mm -hmm. to implement in the way that they see fit. And obviously it's, not the type of thing where it's like, okay, talk to me at the end of the process. There's kind of interim conversations. Um, but that's that's a way to kind of give the right amount of responsibility to, to people and give them autonomy to design and implement things the way that they see fit within that uh, construct. Thank you for that. I'd, I'd really love to hear from your perspective of what it's like to be a builder and a creator instead of working for someone else's dream. Uh, when you join a startup or when you start a startup, that's probably one of the biggest risks that you're taking uh, in your life. You are going out and sacrificing your safety um, to build something that has less than a 50% success rate, like you said, like you alluded to earlier. So our student organization is fundamentally based on our bedrock is people who are entrepreneurial, just like yourself. What specific advice would you give students who are looking to start their own thing 
um, who have decided to go down this very risky and, and potentially treacherous road? So I'd encourage folks to take more risk. I mean, you know, I, some people are more qualified than others to take risk, but I think that everyone should take some degree of risk. I think the reality is, is that we will all land on our feet. You know what I mean? Like, um, I came from a good place. I, I, I built a healthy career. Like my worst case air quotes scenario is that I, I go to a job somewhat similar to the job that I had prior to this, but I have this unique experience of building this company and, and launching these trading venues and expanding my relationships and, and expanding the way that I am able to think about problems. So, and that can be, you know, when you're right out of school, it can be, you know, it can really be any time in your career. Obviously, when you are further along in your career and as you have, um, you know, family plans, that adds complexity to the situation. But, you know, I, I'm relatively passionate that uh, people should take more risk. Um, and I think like a way to assess that um, is to interview many, many people about, you know, what their jobs are like and, you know, if you think that you can add value. I mean, you know, to, to think of this from somewhat of a utilitarian standpoint, um, you know, are you adding more value to society by working in some big organization uh, or for somebody else or doing something on your own? And and by the way, like it's not a loaded statement of the answer is clearly yeah. uh, one direction, you know, one way or the other. Like it's very possible that like, you know, you work for someone else and you can add enormous value, you know, beyond the value that you kind of take. Mm -hmm. uh, but like, that's one way to inspect it. And, you know, if someone is passionate about an idea, the, the good and the bad of it is that like, ideas aren't actually worth that much. It's really execution. That is everything. Like, you know, there's famous examples of this, like uh, Mark Cuban, for example, um, who you folks would certainly know and know <laughs> of. Yeah, of course. Um, now, at the beginning of internet radio or sports internet radio, I believe the story goes that the gentleman who came up with it, um, Cuban and team went to him and he basically, the, the actual creator of this ended up with somewhere between five and 10% of the equity in the organization because Cuban and team were like, you know, we're, we're able to provide some capital, but more importantly, we're able to execute on this idea. Uh -huh. And so execution is really, really the, the meat and potatoes of all of this. So the good and the bad is that like, you don't necessarily need to have a new idea to create a great company. Um, but the challenge of it is that execution is hard. So like, do you have edge? Do you have alpha in execution? And if you don't know, like mm -hmm. you should, one should explore that. And, uh, if you fail, there's, you know, most people will find that they, they land. Okay. I mean, you know, they have a, they have a good education, they have a good network and, you know, we, we certainly sponsor and like are supportive of entrepreneurs who just they they just didn't succeed in their entre entrepreneurial project but mm -hmm. there's many ways that one can spin that into a very positive uh spin is the wrong word uh frame that into a very positive story so my kind of advice to people is to think about taking a little bit more risk yeah 
I think the uh, the second focal word, um, execution, is a perfect segue into our more technically focused uh, part of this uh, this chat. Sure. I want to talk a little bit about equity markets, and uh, I mean, obviously, an equity market is where I'm selling, buying, and selling part o- ownership of a company. Um, mm. And I want to talk about because you you primarily suit institutional clients. What is the what are the main differences between an order being routed from the the point of uh, origin to the actual market for a retail trader versus like one of your institutional clients, and where does the idea for for one Chronos really really come from in in improving that process? Sure. So the supply chain for institutional trading is uh, quite separate and quite independent from retail trading. Uh, the way that retail trading works. And I'm gonna I'm gonna give like the 30 second overview here, and uh, it's a it's a much kind of like longer and pretty interesting conversation. But for the sake of time, basically the way that that works is like you know you or I enter an order into our um, into our uh, retail trading application, whether it's Robinhood or Charles Schwab or Fidelity or whatever, and it's likely that that order n- never goes to a stock exchange. Um, it's likely that those orders are um, are basically shipped to wholesale uh, to to electronic market making firms that uh, have uh, wholesale relationships mm. with those uh, retail brokers, and they provide the service that they provide is they provide a lot of liquidity and they provide competitive uh, pricing. Um, and so that's kind of that that relationship, and it's relatively captive in the United States. And so for that reason, there really aren't retail orders that you know you or I uh, put in mm-hmm. that would make their way to one Kronos, and for that matter, would make their way to many um, exchanges. Um, now, institutional orders take a different uh, supply chain and a different um, a different workflow. And basically, the way that they work, is that an institution sends an order to their broker. Back in the day, this used to be done like over the phone or by humans. Um, and now it's basically split. Like there's there's a workflow that's, that's kind of referred to as high touch, where you might uh, email or call a broker uh, and they will, uh, in some large portion of the time, fill you principally from their principal risk within the firm um, there's another workflow that's that's referred to as low touch, which really means you're using the software that the broker has in order to execute your trades. And, and that's uh, in an agency capacity, typically. So, you know, the banks and you can, you know, name your large bulge bracket bank, they, they all have this type of software where a institutional client of theirs enters an order, let's say they want to buy 500,000 shares of Apple, it goes into the uh, the execution algorithm software that the bank provides. And the software's purpose is to be a thoughtful access point to the various um, liquidity destinations that exist in the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and believe it or not, you know many of your listeners would probably be familiar with the New York Stock Exchange mm-hmm. or NASDAQ. These are two 
of about 50 different market centers. And any stock in the US can basically trade on any of them, right? Like New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ are primary listings venues. And there's only one venue that a stock can be primarily listed on, like issue new stock on. But as far as secondary trading, you can trade, one can trade Apple or Netflix or Google or Berkshire Hathaway or any of these stocks or ETFs on effectively any of these different exchanges or venues. So going back to the institutional example, the institution takes an order of, let's say, 500,000 shares. They put it in the broker's execution algorithm. That execution algorithm's job is to basically say, okay, I'm going to take this order of 500,000 shares and I'm going to chop it up into these smaller slices. And the reason why it decides that that's a thoughtful thing to do is if you think of, you know, in some of your um, some of your microeconomics courses, just simple supply demand curve, right? If you take a very large order and you display it on a uh, public limit order book, um, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to occur, right? Like at, at minimum, you're going to if you're a buyer, you're going to eat very far into the supply side of the curve. Yep. But also, all these other dynamics are going to incur where certain folks are going to step out of the way. Other people are going to buy at some price with the intention of selling to you at a higher point in the curve. So there's all these things that basically create what's called information leakage and market impact. So the kind of like game theoretic uh, world um, kind of has decided that the best solution for that is to break this up into many small orders and place it in different parts of the market. So the algorithm decides how to slice it up and basically the schedule by which it will trade over time, okay. right? There might be boundaries that say, you know, that the institutional trader says, I want this to be, you know, the volume weighted average price between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m., right? So they've kind of put boundary constraints on the algorithm the algorithm's kind of top layer will decide how to cut it up and the schedule by which to trade it. And then that will delegate responsibility to something that's usually referred to as an order router. And the order router sends actual child slices, um, you know, 100 shares or 200 shares or 50 shares to many different market centers, including mine and including, including many others. And the question of how do they decide to send an order to one Kronos versus these other venues is based off of very recent history, meaning what was the experience like when they tried trading there in the last, call it one to two seconds, right? Did they get filled uh, when they last tried? What was the experience like? What price did they get filled at? And so there's three or four metrics uh, most of these are pretty nuanced nomenclature specific to our industry, but basically they're, you know, performance indicators mm -hmm. that form somewhat of a, um, a factor model that tells the router, hey, this order, it makes sense to send to one Kronos versus this order, it makes sense to send somewhere else. Yeah. So we, we compete on those dimensions. And so when it comes to your question of like, okay, well, like, where did this origin idea come from? I mean, our thinking is like, look, if I survey a hundred institutional asset managers and I say like, you know, what does great trading execution quality mean to you? Right. And they all give me answers and I say, okay, I'm just going to rank order those answers. And I take the top three or four things and you know, 
the technology is here now, uh, much of which has been kind of cultivated and invented here at One Kronos to literally optimize for those outcomes. And so what has existed historically is that trading venues uh, have unintentionally um, incentivized being very fast because the the allocation methodology that they generally use is first in first out accounting, mm -hmm. right? So kind of the 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 patriarchs of electronic trading <laughs> said, you know, hey, you know, it's a very tough decision of like, you know, James and Jesse are both, you know, they have an order to buy something at $10. Who gets to be the winner of that, right? Yeah. Like there's one, there's one seller, there's two buyers, who gets to be the lucky buyer? And so they decided first in, first out makes sense. Um, but what that has encouraged is a race for speed. And so there is an enormous focus on speed, but speed is not really what institutions are looking for. In fact, when you ask these institutions, they say like, yeah, I'm, I'm not in the speed game. I don't care for my broker to be in the speed game. I know that they kind of need to be in the speed game because that's what's required. But really, you know, I believe that best execution or great execution quality means this, this, this. So, you know, we at One Kronos are really in the business of delivering what institutional users believe is great trading execution quality. And that happens to be the same factors that uh, generally speaking, that these broker smart order routers tend to focus on when they're routing orders in the first place. Yep. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And focusing in a little bit more on the tech that's behind one Kronos. So you guys sure. differ from the traditional um, router or market maker. Um, you guys don't do, as you, as you said, you guys do not focus on first in, first out, or on speed. Um, the optimizer model that you guys to make your uh, clients happy is it? How intensive is it? How kind of what powers it? Is it? Do you have? It, is it running on a main range mainframe somewhere, or kind of? Can you walk me through that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So um, our optimization approach is uh, resource intensive. Um, we have built so far. We've built nearly everything on ourselves. Yeah. Um, and that means like handwriting the solvers that we use. Um, now, over time, we intend to incorporate many different optimization algorithms, which kind of map to new solvers, which ultimately result in a portfolio of solvers that will compete with each other. And we will pluck the, the best solution of those various competing solvers. Uh -huh. Now that said, regardless of how many solvers you have, um, this is a very hard problem to chew on uh, because basically what we're doing is we're running auctions 10 to 20 times every second. So we're running optimizations 10 to 20 times per second. And for each optimization, we're saying, okay, we can match you with you, so-and-so with so-and-so, so-and-so with so-and-so. What's the configuration of matches, each of which represents a candidate solution in space uh -huh. um, that best satisfies uh, our uh, objective function, right? So right now, it's not really a problem. Like we actually find like globally optimal solutions very quickly, like in a matter of single digit milliseconds. Wow. Um, even though we give the optimizer, you know, many milliseconds, like let's say 25 to 30 milliseconds to think about a problem. Mm 
That said, there are some thoughtful, elegant approaches that um, companies have taken in the past few years to say, you know what, like somewhere out there in space, there is a globally optimal solution, but uh, I don't need to be obsessed with finding it. I just need to find a, you know, like it's very possible that a local solution, right? A local min or a local max a very good is, solution. Yeah. is completely satisfactory, you know? So if you think of like, uh, you know, Google's DeepMind subsidiary that um, works on um, uh, protein prediction, protein structure prediction, uh, they have like very, 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 very high accuracy in predicting protein structures. But like, there's more possible protein structures than like atoms in the universe. So like, it's not just a problem that you can like throw servers at. Yeah. Uh, you need to take thoughtful approaches yeah. slash shortcuts to find really great solutions. And guess what? Like, you know, they beat pretty much everyone else who takes a brute force approach um, to predicting these things. Yeah. And like it, it's very, very valuable to society. So anyway, in our case, we uh, are taking similar approaches to say, look, like there will be a point where based on order complexity and order volume and concentration of ordered volume, where we will be pushing up against the boundary of our time constrained algorithms, optimization algorithms. And that's okay because, you know, there are heuristics based approaches where we can say, look, like, you know, we know the globally optimal solution is like somewhere in this room, but uh, you know we're going to use historical heuristics to like give our optimization algorithms the best starting point possible, so that they can get as close as possible to that optimal solution, mm -hmm. and we'll let that same auction run offline for much, much, much longer, uh, for basically two reasons. One we can measure the distance between, you know, how good our optimization algos are in a matter of milliseconds versus a matter of hours so that we have that actual comparative benchmarking yeah. and two, uh, so that we can apply some reinforcement learning elements such that when the auctions run longer and offline, uh, it can coach our optimization algorithms to, to find better starting points for future auctions that face similar auction dynamics. Does that make sense? That's that's so fascinating. So you have elements of machine learning factoring into this as well. Um, hasn't really been applied yeah, that much. We got we got all the buzzwords over there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One, one last technical snippet of, about this. Um, sure. You've worked a lot with, with quantitative trading firms and a, a benefit of one Kronos is that if you are a quant HFT bespoke trading firm, you can submit your own code to one Kronos actually. Yeah. So how does that on-prem execution improve uh, execution time in a substantial way over traditional order routing? And um, does, do quant firms come to you for that specific offering as well? I appreciate the question. So um, it's not specific to quant firms, any firm like, uh, well, let me say this. As a technical matter, our customers are all uh, broker dealers. Mm -hmm. So we spend a lot of time with uh, the institutional community who are, you know, the the customers of the banks and brokers. But as a technical matter, the banks and brokers are our customers. And generally, those are the folks that we are um, that we are most commonly dealing with. Mm -hmm. And 
in 100% of cases, those are the folks who are routing us uh, orders. Mm -hmm. And um, and also those are the folks that, that generally come to us to talk to us about expressive bidding, which is the, the, um, the logic that you're referring to. And so for your listeners' sake, what that means is basically we run uh, constrained optimizations, both constrained both in terms of time. You know, we talked about a little bit earlier, we, we allow an optimization algorithm to run for uh, 25 or 30 milliseconds, um, but also constrained in terms of the boundaries of where to look for answers. So for example, um, it would not make sense to look for a price below zero uh, for a stock yeah. because that, that doesn't make sense. But we have to tell the machine to not do that, right? Otherwise, it's going to like waste, waste precious fuel, uh, so to speak, uh -huh. looking in places that are illogical. So we say to ourselves, okay, well, we're, we're running a constrained optimization, meaning we've injected our own house constraints into the uh, optimization process. But why not let customers inject their own constraints into the optimization for things that are germane to them, right? So for example, I'm interested to buy asset A, but only if I can sell asset B at this spread or better. Huh. Or I wanna trade this basket of stocks, uh, this portfolio of stocks, but only when the correlation amongst the stocks is greater than 80%. Hmm. Or I only wanna buy this single security, but only when the, the spread in the stock is less than, you know, two basis points or something like that, right? So these are all things that people can communicate inside of our matching engine. And uh, it's, it's relatively agnostic in, in terms of like um, anybody can use these tools. Um, we can help folks design these tools. They can design it on their own. Um, and it's a very simple, lightweight thing to do. And so it's, it's not really biased towards any individual user type. No. Okay. I'd love to ask you about your background. There are, there are a ton of students who don't go down a or business degree or a traditional computer science degree that end up, they end up in a fintech, in the fintech arena, and they end up being very successful. Um, you were a psychology major in your undergrad at Northeastern. Did that play anything or did that have any effect in you founding Run Kronos? And do you have any advice for some, a student or an undergraduate student who's not sure what they want to do? Yes and yes. Uh, so, um, so for me, I would not have done my path any differently, I don't think. Um, I mean, there are, there are some slight kind of changes that maybe I would make, but in terms of like my major, I really enjoyed studying people uh, and, and understanding human behavior. I mean, at the end of the day, like, you know, um, we now live in a day and age and you folks who are a little bit younger than me um, are living in a day and age where like, you know, AI is uh, a compliment and also a threat in terms of like, you know, the types of jobs that will exist in, you know, a decade and two decades, right? You have, you know, the writer's strike going on right now of people who are feeling marginalized by the by the power of AI. And I think like a really, I mean, to me, I think it's terribly interesting because computers in the past have just been, you know, we would tell it requests and it would do a good job of returning that request. 
now we live in a day and age where they are actually like creative partners to humans, which is like, you know, really powerful. Um, but um, I, I think for me, understanding people and being able to apply human intuition and interpersonal communication and conflict resolution was hugely beneficial for me to uh, navigate my own career. And not so much to decide to, you know, leave to, um, to start a project like this, um, but more in the sense of just getting to a, a point of um, success where I, you know, where I can communicate with stakeholders, whether that's internal or external. Because at the end of the day, we're all we're all selling something, right? Wow. Like we're selling ourselves, we're selling our ideas. Um, you know, you're you know a product person within an organization where you're trying to get buy-in. At the same time, you're you don't want to win the battle and lose the war, you know, by, you know, running over your colleagues and friends or friends or both. And like, yes, you got your idea accomplished, but it was at the expense of like the relationship that you have with those people. So mm -hmm. for me, it helped me be more self-aware, which was a really important tool for me. And I think that especially in the trading business, the trading business, the people in the trading business historically have not been great, are not great at, um, you know, self-awareness, or actually, uh, I certainly don't want to generalize. What, I, what I'd say a bit better is a trading floor, particularly historically, is a place where decisions have to be made really quickly. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of uh, things moving around, including money. And there's sizable consequence to things going right or going wrong. Mm -hmm. So it's somewhat of a Petri dish for poor communication, period. So like, you know, insert the best communicator it still is a challenging place yeah. to be uh thoughtful and sensitive and uh empathetic um but it doesn't mean that we can't do better right so for me i thought that that was a really important part of my own trajectory and it has been hugely helpful to me not just here but also in prior roles that i've had because in the past 10 years, I've really been building and representing products that are relatively disruptive in our space and uh, disruptive and innovative, but disruption is painful. I mean, it sounds sexy, but like it's painful because you need to get people to buy into a concept that's new. And sometimes it requires people to buy into workflows that are new and that's a challenging domain. So I think it has a lot to do with understanding how buying decisions are made. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, um, it, on your second question around, I guess, like advice to, uh, to students from non-traditional majors or, um, you know, folks outside of FinTech, uh, do not be discouraged because, you know, just because you didn't major in engineering or computer science. Um, I think that anyone can learn any of these things. Look, like if I can learn Python, anybody can learn. <laughs> Python, right? <laughs> like, like, like I, I am no genius, right? Like, if I, if I can learn, you know, linear and integer programming, then both of you and many others uh, can. If you don't know it, or if you don't know these topics already, so my point is that, like, uh, we are each and all capable of so much more than we think that we can do. It requires pushing yourself to a boundary of of sometimes discomfort, but. A good manager 
particularly at a, at a company a little bit larger than ours, it should go back to the principles that I mentioned earlier of hiring for aptitude, motivation, and values. And so if you really focus on that in your interview process, don't be distracted by you know, not knowing how to model, you know, internal rate of return or like net present value. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's actually a really common phrase as well. Um, it's, if you don't know who you are, the world will tell you who you are. Um, and, and this gets at the fact that, um, you should know who you are as a person deep down. Um, and even if you don't know who you are as a person yet, how can you continue to make forward progress? What even is forward progress when you're still searching for your own soul as a college kid? These are some deep questions. So <laughs> my take on this is like, you know, I'm, I'm in like a arena of like math and data and research. And like, we're always searching to like have more data points so that, you know, the confidence bands around what we're looking at are tighter and, you know, we want 40, 50,000 samples to be able to like make some determination yeah. of something. But the, the, the crazy and also beautiful thing about life is that we don't have that opportunity, right? We don't have the chance to like, you, you don't, you don't ever learn the counterfactual. Like there's not some quantum world, at least that we're aware of where like, okay, I make decision a, I get a job offer at these two firms. I take path a, like what would things have been like at, if I took path B? Um, so that's a challenge. Um, and so that said, there are some things we can do to, you know, try to address that. And one of them is to experiment around. Mm -hmm. And this kind of goes to the point of taking risk. Like, you know, uh, two pieces of advice. One is talk to everybody that you can about you know what their job is like and what their career is like and what their path has been everybody that you can i'm talking like you know not just the people um around you but also the people that are two or three years ahead of you the people that are 10 years ahead of you people in different fields you know even fields that you've kind of written off if you've not completely written it off talk to someone there so that you can fully write it off if you want to or like or like rope it back in right so um Talk to, talk to as many people as you can so that you can learn vicariously through their experiences what might make sense to you. So those are data points that you can effectively um, get. Yeah. The, other thing, the other thing is, and this is, you know, I'm expanding the time horizon here a little bit beyond college, but it could be applied to college too, which is try out as many things as you can. Like when you're in college, you can try out different classes, you can try out different affinity networks. But if you get into a job, Right. And, and you realize, you know, like you're an accounting major and you did well in accounting and you get a job at a prestigious accounting firm, but you, you start and you're like, oh my goodness, like this is like debits and credits are just not for me. You know what I mean? <laughs> like if you, if you learn that after, you know, six, eight months, like pivot, like, yeah. you know, yeah. change course and like, you know, try it out, try out different, like, you know, in your twenties, you honestly, you, you, you don't need to be on this like perfect path of being part of an analyst class and then like, you know, formally being part of some rotation and, you know, whatever. There's so much focus on that that I think it distracts people from yeah. trying out different things. And, and by the way, 
it's not just a comment on like accounting isn't for me. It could be like the organizational structure or the boss or the team or like the dynamic just isn't for you. And that's okay. Like, is, you're not, you're not like flawed because of that. Like, it's just like, it's not a match between like, you know, you and them and that's all right. And that's not like a bad knock on you. But what happens so often is that people hang around for years and years and, you know, they get kind of bitter and, uh, and they're like, you know, every time you grab a coffee with them, they're like, yeah, like, you know, I, I can't stand for that. It's like, well, yeah. do something about it. You know what I mean? Like go pull the plug. So, um, try to, you know, when I say take risk, it could be in the startup sense, but you can also take risk by just exploring the unknown, yeah. right? The unknown is like a different job in a related or different field that you might not know exactly how that's going to pan out for you, but it might be better. It might be worse, right? There are these little, um, there are these little crabs, uh, called fiddler crabs that, um, they, uh, they have this arm that is like, uh, larger than the other arm. And basically what, what, what happens is, is that like the dominant male in the cluster is basically the one that has the largest crab arm. So what they do is, uh, if they believe that their that their fiddler arm, their dominant arm, isn't like big enough or powerful enough, they cut it off, and another one grows back. And the hope, the hope is that that uh, crab arm will grow back bigger and stronger and more dominant. But when they cut it off, they take risk because they're completely vulnerable for that. Yeah. I, I don't know. How the period is that they go through i think it's a few weeks but i could be totally wrong but for some period of time they're armless literally and uh they have no defenses but they take this risk because it's what they must do mm -hmm. so like um it's a little bit of a goofy parallel but i think like you know we should all be more comfortable taking a little bit more risk it doesn't mean like you know yeah. do something that has a very low probability of of working but um it, it really comes down to like getting a lot more data getting data as quickly as you can and taking a little bit more risk to get that data. So what I heard is TLDR, we should all become fiddler crabs. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've just got two more, two more really quick questions to touch on. Um, sure. I, I feel like a lot of people in college idolize people like you, Jesse. And, and we, we often think that there are these people out here out there that are just miles and miles and miles ahead of us. And how will we ever, uh, get to to being a COO at a startup, right? Um, so I, I want to try to humanize you a little bit for some of our members, some of the members of our audience. And I want to ask sure. you, what is one thing that you've gotten wrong? So this is going to sound redundant uh, to kind of some of the themes that I've been saying. Yeah. But I think that uh, I have been too risk averse over time. And so that's where some of this suggestive guidance comes in of like, you know, taking more risk sooner. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm not implying that I should have like left Goldman Sachs sooner. There are, there's plenty of risks that I could have taken uh, within the firm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And there's plenty of other things that I could have, that I could have done or explored. Um, so that's, that's kind of one piece. The other piece, uh, which I'm still working to better myself on is just having a better balance 
like, you know, I, um, it's tough. Like basically, you know, I went to grad school in 2012 to 2014 and I got out of grad school and then I got into a job that was a great job. And I immediately started working like a hundred hour a week. Yeah. Um, that was like my graduation present that I earned <laughs> was like a hundred hour a week job. And before I know it, like, you know, I'm taking a car home at 10 30 PM, you know, I'm going to sleep just to like wake up and be back there at seven something. And it wasn't like the firm was not asking this of me. It was what I felt compelled to do to really push myself to like be great. Um, but I don't, I, I'm uncertain that that made that, that made the best sense. In fact, I'm kind of confident that that didn't make the best sense. So there's this element of like, work smarter, not harder, and find a balance because, you know, life is, I don't want to speak like I'm, you know, super far along in my career. <laughs> um, but I, but I think that like, you know, this is really a journey, right? And like, it's important to enjoy the journey. It's important to enjoy college. I had a great time at school. <laughs> I mean, I had a really good, I had a really good time in Boston. I had a really good time in Philly. And, uh, and I'm really proud of that. Um, but I want to make sure that I'm like still living my life and that I'm still active. Right. Like I, you know, I, I'm an athlete. I play music. I like do other things. Like I want to have like a life outside of the office. And, you know, this is a time where it's also challenging because, you know, when you're, when you're running a startup, um, sometimes that's just like not afforded to you. Right. Like we, you know, like it, it just isn't always afforded to you. So trying to find that balance is really important. And that can happen from an early age. And I think one of the positives coming out of COVID is that it has helped society reevaluate what's important. But life is short. Life is short for our loved ones and our plus ones. And uh, you never know what's coming. And so like, it's really important to enjoy the journey. And that doesn't mean you can't like be like super focused on your job and your career, but it's, it's, it's important to revisit routinely kind of, you know, one's priorities and how to like balance those in a way that's healthy. It's like, sometimes I feel so focused on getting to the moon that I forget to look back sometimes and see where I'm, where I'm at. Right. Yeah. That, that feel, yeah. that's a, uh, that's kind of a, a sad feeling that we're, we're, um, so inclined to do so much work that we don't realize that there's so many other amazing things in life other than just making an impact or using the buzzword adding value, right? Yeah. 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 So it's, it's really important to have a balance because like, you know, you, you end up being, you end up being an older person and, you know, you've amassed like, you know, wealth and credentials, but like, you know, what happens if you have no great relationships to show for it and, and no great, you know, worldly experiences. So, um, I, I'd encourage folks to think about that, uh, including, including at the stage that, that you guys are at. Yeah. I have just one last question that we ask every single guest that comes on to the FinTech at IU podcast. A lot of us, like we've talked about incessantly already, are 18 to 22-year-old college students. Um, we may not necessarily know who we are yet, 
So if there's one actionable step that someone could put in place today, right after listening to this episode, that would put them in a really, really awesome place in the next five years, what would that one step be and why would you give that piece of advice to them? Well, can I give two? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat a little bit. <laughs> Go for it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So one is kind of repeating part of what I said before around get as much data as you can of people in different fields, right? Mm -hmm. What types of problem, which will help you in your self-discovery process, learn about yourself. Because it's not just about what fields do you want to be in. It's about what types of problems do you want to work on? And what's like the duration or tenor of those problems? Like, do you want to work on, like in electronic trading, you know, trades happen, we, you know, we put up a few hundred thousand trades every day. Mm -hmm. um, and if, you know, those were privately negotiated trades, which they're not, like, would you want to be working on things that are thousands of trades a day? Or do you want to be working on like a banking type thing that like, you know, there's five transactions a year, yeah. right? Like what types of problems? And like, you know, are you quantitatively oriented or are you like, you know, more of a poet um, type person? You know, are you someone who wants to, you know, be in a creative space uh, and come up with requirements? Or are you someone who says, look, just like, give me the requirements and I will build. I don't want to, you know, negotiate what they're supposed to be. Just tell me what to build and I'll build it flawlessly. Right. So interview, pardon me, interviewing people in different capacities will help you in your self-discovery process. The second piece that I will say, uh, which, which apply definitely applies to um, folks your age and in the coming years is every day is an interview. Um, and uh, I don't mean that to like, um, sound overwhelming, but every, every day is an opportunity to impress your superior at your job, right? Like when you interview, you know, people much more accomplished than, than I, uh, you know, and you say, Hey, like, you know, how did you get to that role or how did you get to that position? A lot of people will attribute it to, you know, luck and they're being kind of humble when they say that. And it does take luck, right? It, it takes, there is some element of opportunity, but what I can say, cause I've seen it is that like, you know, you work in some organization and your boss who was an awesome, you know, person leaves to like start her own company and she wants to, you know, pluck like, you know, just one person, her best person. Right. Um, you know, and there's 10 of you on the team, right. It's the person that showed up every day and really like, you know, did their best and put in their best effort and their best foot forward. That's the person that gets tapped on the shoulder, right? And that's the person you're interviewing who like, you know, they're like, oh, it was luck, right? But it wasn't luck. It was that they were the best at what they do. So like what I can say to you guys, like being a little bit more real and crude with you guys is like when you're younger, it's fun to, you know, go out after work and socialize and stuff like that. You know, you don't want to be the person that's like hung over the next day and like got to bed a mistake. I'm serious. Like, you know, every day is an opportunity to impress and every day is an opportunity to unimpress. So I think early in your career in particular, it's really critical to have that mindset that um, every, every day is an interview and every day is an opportunity. And I've, I've never met a person who like said, oh, it was luck 
But when you like dig into their story a little further or ask the people that work with them when they were younger, they were like, oh yeah, yeah. that person was unbelievably fantastic at what they did. <laughs> I think it's a tendency for people that are in good positions to be humble and uh, they'll say it's luck when they, they might believe it's luck, but they maybe even on the inside, they know it was because of their hard work. Of course. Yeah. But it's, but, but the important, an important piece to just like, uh, hit the point home is that it's not necessarily that they were some genius. It's that they were really mindful of this framework of like, I really want to like do my best every day. And that doesn't need to mean staying till 9 PM. It means like when I'm there, I'm representing the brand of the firm and I'm rep representing the brand of this team. And I'm being really thoughtful about what my team and what my superiors want of me. Yeah. I, I, I love that advice. And I, I, I think I still need to gather more data points, like you said, because there, there's an opposite school of thought that says, oh, well, you should only do the bare minimum at work because life is so much more precious than work, right? Um, so I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to find that balance or imbalance, whatever, whatever that looks like for me. And I think a lot of other people are struggling with that as well. But I digress on that front. I think that's an exciting part of the journey. I can I can certainly um, imagine that it's stressful, but it's also an exciting element because you have the whole um, future ahead of you, and it's a it's a really good opportunity to interview people of many different walks of life to see what might be a fit for you. Yeah. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for for joining us today on Indeed. the podcast. Uh, Cameron, thank you for co-hosting with me of today. Course. Uh, thank you to the IU Media School for allowing us to use their spaces today. And, of course, thank you to Dr. Monaco and Dr. Dokulich for their support with our student organization, uh, getting us to where we are today. Thank you once again, Jesse, for being here, and thank you for listening in today. Thank you both for having me.